This is exactly right. Forgive me for interrupting. I'm Bridger Weiniger, host of I Said No Gifts on Exactly Right. Each week, I invite my favorite people in comedy over to chat, and they always bring a gift. We're coming up on our 200th episode, and every episode is a gem. I have welcomed all kinds of great guests, including Cola Scola, Bowen Yang, Robbie Hoffman. It goes on and on and on. And you don't want to miss the 200th episode with the great Maria Bamford. What does she bring me? Find out April 25th. New episodes every Thursday. Follow I Said No Gifts wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, fan cult? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's, What's up, up, fan cult? I pushed that a little bit. It was kind of obnoxious. That was great. I went nasal on it. <laughs> um, this is, hi. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for coming out in the rain. This is... Right? That's here for weather in Los Angeles. That's amazing. Can you believe it's happening? This is, I would say, the first official live, in-person, Los Angeles fan cult meeting. Welcome, everybody. Yeah. We're going to call your name from a list. That's right. Please only say the word present. Yep. And then tell me if my if you've messaged with my dad on the fan cult. <laughs> Please. Is Marty here tonight? No, he's not. Oh. Maybe. I, I didn't invite him. Maybe. <laughs> He's in the back wearing a weird mustache. Marty, <laughs> we see you. We feel no, you. That's Steven. Um, I, Steven. Steven. Oh, you, Steven, you are here, right? No, not there. <laughs> uh, yeah, this, yeah, it's so weird, like, doing this in our hometown and, and not being, you know, in another city and staying at a hotel tonight. Yeah. Oh, we're going to stay at a hotel. I forgot to tell you. I got us uh, the bridal suite at Shutters. We're going to drive out. Aww. Yeah, it's going to be the most romantic oh night of the entire tour. Um, well, so you probably all know this. You saw the amazing sign in front of the Elway tonight, but we are here because TNT invited us um, to screen the pilot of their new series, I Am the Night. Yes. It's really fucking cool, obviously. It centers around the Black Dahlia murders, which is fucking fascinating. Um, and, and that you all know, like the back of your hand. Yeah. We're still going to go over it. We have to talk about it. <laughs> we have to lay it out for all the people that brought their mom or whatever weird choice they decided to make tonight. <laughs> hey, I work with you. We've only talked twice. Do you want to come to a murder comedy show with me? I bet you won't be offended at all. Is that a crucifix you're wearing? Okay. Let's see. Let's see how our night goes. And you're fired. And why do I keep inviting my boss places? It is really freaking cool to be at the El Rey, though, because I've seen so many concerts here. Yes. Since I was super young. And this neighborhood, Miracle Mile, is my, like, family's, like, neighborhood. You grew up rich? <laughs> Since, no. 
Uh, <laughs> truly, no. Uh, that is a myth. <laughs> That's a lie. I'm floating. Yeah. I mean, go for it. Who cares? Think about Georgia. She's fucking from tons of money. <laughs> Her parents own miracle. <laughs> so, but my so my aunt Elaine, when she was in high school. I don't know, the 50s, let's say? Uh, <laughs> Is this a real person? I swear. Okay. Air. I okay. texted with her today. She went to high school at Fairfax, and she used to um, work here when it was a movie theater. Really? Serving popcorn. Yeah. Isn't that neat? And I told her I'm going to be here tonight. She said, break a leg. I asked my mom how long we'd live in Miracle Mile, and she didn't text me back. <laughs> She's too popular for me now. Because Janet started listening to some of the back issues, uh -oh. uh, back episodes, and now she knows everything you're saying about she her. Got, yeah, yeah. She probably she got a, a hold of a, a copy of our book. <laughs> she was like, "There's a chapter called I Hate My Mom <laughs> by Georgia Hardstark." And so I don't love, love you anymore. I'm not going to be texting with you until <laughs> we discuss that. That's right. I actually, one of my favorite uh, concerts I've ever seen was here, was Yola Tango a couple years ago. And here's the hugest brag, I got to be in that balcony somehow. I don't, I'm not sure, I definitely didn't buy anything. <laughs> so it was like I was with somebody or there was, I maybe knew the balcony guy, I'm not sure, but I got up into that balcony and then me and my friend Matt Price were eavesdropping on people at the bar's conversations. <laughs> And then we started yelling out nouns that they were saying. Cause no. like everyone at the bar was being so intensely Los Angeles. Like there was two dudes that kept on talking about Runyon and they were just like fucking Runyon this yeah, and man. Runyon that. I fucking, what were they saying? They were, it was just like, dude, I went out to Runyon the other day where I was like, it is an, it's a dirt uphill with dog shit on it is what Runyon is. Really? If you feel like working out, and you love animal feces, get the fuck up, Runyon. Yeah. <laughs> Truly one of the worst places to hike <laughs> in Los Angeles. It stinks the whole time, and you're outside. Yeah. So you're like, is there dog shit on my shoe? Yeah. Oh no, the trail's made of dog shit. <laughs> I see. It's definitely one of those beautiful places that make you say to yourself, this is why I take my shoes off before I go in my house <laughs> and make everyone do so. It's the, it's the reason I say, oh, why did I ever think I would be an actor in Los Angeles? <laughs> That's crazy. I would never walk up Runyon mm -hmm. unless someone had a shotgun to my back. <laughs> and even then, I'd be yeah. like, could we go somewhere with less shit? <laughs> but anywhere else. Let's I just get to the end of this, can we? How about the oil derricks? They hardly have any shit around them. Yeah, so we just sat up there yelling, Runyon! Or... <laughs> I think M Cafe also got yelled oh, yeah. at at some point. Those two go hand in hand, though. Right? You walk Runyon, then you go get your fucking keto lunch mm -hmm. at M Cafe. Yeah. There's some people here that are like, look, I'm from Torrance. I don't know what the fuck <laughs> you are talking about yeah. or why. It sounds terrible, though. <laughs> it's a celebration of Los Angeles. That's right. Your hands are ghost-like I cold. know. Cold like a ghost. Oh, oh, do oh, you want I to show your outfit? Oh, yeah. Show that out, the girl. Yes. Can you believe it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. This is from actually local Los Angeles designer, May 68. Mr. Fred Siegel. Oh, what? May 68? Yeah. 
uh, the girl who made the, the collar shirt that says SSDG. Yeah, she's good. Um, and then that's it. It's a dress. It's a little tight. I had to take my bra off to zip it all the way up. <laughs> that's what we're all about. Sacrificing yeah. for show business. That's it's what, what, what we do. You have no tits. Uh, that bras are just to fill, like, fill out your outfit. <laughs> so when something doesn't zip, if you just take it off, you don't need the filling out anymore. God, that hasn't been my experience in life. What so fucking ever? Er, tie it down. Mm -hmm. um, oh, here's my fucking oh, outfit. Yeah. It's oh. called. Thanks. Thanks. It's called. It's a, yes, it's absolutely a show, but it's here in Los Angeles, and I like cashmere, and um, I also couldn't find my tights. I have my show tights, the, the one pair that were made by uh, the military, and they're the Spanx that hold you in uh, with nuclear fission. Um, I couldn't find those. Yes or no? You use an entire roll of uh, a lint roller backstage. <laughs> I brought so much George and Frank with me tonight. My dogs are here in spirit and in hair. I swear to God, I was lint rolling this stupid fucking sweater for the entire time we were backstage. It's the true. entire time. And it was almost like that thing, pet owners, back me up. <laughs> it's the thing where... You start rolling and then more comes up. Yeah. Like you're like, oh, I just wanted those three gone. Yeah. Now there's seven. Where did they? Where are they coming from? And why haven't I come out with my own line of dog hair sweaters? Yeah. Because <laughs> it would just be so much easier. You know what you gotta do? Take your bra off, and then everything fits. I do <laughs> not think. Do you know that I have nightmares where I'm like at a party and I'm like, this is a pretty good prop. I'm not wearing a bra. <laughs> I've had that nightmare easily 50 times. Easily. Wait, you, hold on. Okay. Steven, you are here, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let people admire you. Hey. Thank you. Let's see that mustache. <laughs> yeah. Oh, did he get a folding chair? Oh. Vince. Our, uh, if you're in folding chairs, thank you so much. <laughs> Um, yeah, there's there's really nice classy chairs up front, and then they're like, we have to borrow some from the church down the street. We don't usually put people in the aisle. We're a rock fucking venue. Yeah. What are you doing? Usually, I'm standing back there, leaning, hopefully leaning against the thing, not seeing behind some tall fucking indie rockers. Oh, wait. the back. tallest guys like music. <laughs> Truly, and being bored out of my mind. <laughs> Have you ever? I poked people in the back when they stand in front of me. They're truly tall. Yeah. Fuck you. You know what you're doing. Yeah. You know. Yo, yeah. Yeah. Because you can always poke and run, or just slightly <laughs> shift, and then it looks like the dude standing next to you poked him, and they're like, "Oh no, a fight! Everybody, get away! Get away! A fight!" Yes. Well, the last time Dirt you saw a good fight. I want to see a good fucking fight tonight, you guys. <laughs> If there's anybody out there that's not feeling it with their neighbor, go ahead and express that through your fists. I would love it. TNT's like, edit that part. Wait, she condone violence. She yeah. encourage violence. So anyway, thank you so much for being here tonight. We are so stoked. Yes. Honestly. Thank you, guys. Especially because it's raining. You guys are heroes. 
Yeah, you really are. We appreciate it. Because it wasn't just like sprinkles, sprinkles, the ground gets wet, that cool smell comes up, and then you walk around, which is what Los Angeles thinks uh-huh. rain is. In a really cute jacket. You're right. like, I have a raincoat. Oh, well, I guess I'll wear my jacket from the 70s. Yeah. Nope. This was like... Is that oh, me? You're making fun of me. I'm celebrating it. <laughs> you don't do this. <laughs> I don't swing my leg like that. You don't. Um, yeah, no, I was just going to say tonight is ugly. It's ugly rain gear uh, weather. And that is a huge sacrifice for our audience to come out. We know. Yeah. It's hard to come out at all, like when it's not raining yes. and you have to be around other people. Ugh, the grossest. Yeah. You're just like, every time I go out now, especially, I'm just like, I want to go to that party, but if one person talks about Runyon in front of me, I swear <laughs> to God. I swear to God, I can't do it. Mm-mm, not again, M Cafe. No way. <laughs> All right, let's sit down. Okay. All right. You guys, TNT, we're like, this show's about Black Dahlia. We do a show about it. And I covered like three, like very early in the podcast. Um, so it, it, a long time ago. <laughs> it was like two, a, 18, 18 months ago. Podcast around here. Uh, some um, suspects, but we haven't done the Black Dahlia, so it's kind of perfect. Did I just step on you trying to say there hasn't been a Black Dahlia around here for 25 years? I was going to say podcast around here. <laughs> no. Edit it, edit it to make it sound good, Stephen. Stephen, put the private show filter on this, because we're just, it's so intimate. Loosey-goosey. Yeah. We're going to cover, uh, I'm going to cover uh, the Elizabeth Short aspect. Um, so that by the time we show you, so what's exciting is we get to show you the show, um, and before anybody else gets to see it, because that's like one of the many benefits of being in the fan cults, is like, now we're going to try to make you all our plus ones for all this shit that we get, and when people are like, hey, here's our thing, and then we're like, you guys, come in here. So maybe we should do, like, we should do a thing where we start watching TV with everybody in public. That would be really cool. <laughs> Just like, okay. Does your show have a knife in it? We'll all watch it. Yeah. That sounds good. Only if you have a smattering of folding chairs, though. <laughs> That's the only way. We should do BYO folding chairs. Absolutely. Um, there's those people that have the ones with the big pads. Oh, yeah. They come with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just a big, gorgeous, kind of sometimes plaid pad. <laughs> You lost me. Plaid. Come on. Did you never play bingo in your life? You're so not Catholic. I'm sick of it. Sick of it. Miracle Mile. I'm sorry. I was forced to play bingo on a farm. Are you? I'm not. You shouldn't be because that sounds amazing. (laughs) It's the best kind. That's the one where the cow shits on the number and then that's... That's real. Yes, you don't know about this? It's like stuff they do at high school football games where it's like everybody gets a, they put out a big grid on the football field with numbers. No. Yeah, and then the cow walks around and whatever number it shits on, you win. No. 26? Oh my God. Are you fucking with me? Because you're the first time in my life making me glad I grew up in suburbia. (laughs) It's fully real. Okay. Yeah. So I'm going to introduce you to the uh, case itself. Um, the fu- it's so funny too because it, probably everybody in this room this this case is one of the most famous cold cases in probably of the century. Um, it's been talked about. It's been theorized about. There's been so many books written, um, and so, there's so much a uh, kind of like espionage around it of like who was you know was someone crooked? Did people get bought off or people whatever? 
Um, Espionage? Was it Russian spies? What is the word I was trying to think of? Uh, Rumors? No. Espionage. I think it was espionage. It was certainly not espionage. (laughs) No, what? It's too late. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me the word. Tell me the word. Speculation? Speculation? No. Uh, What if we spend a half an hour just having every person guess? Let's go in order. Shit on the right word. Just lay, quickly lay down 25 large it, words. Now come pick which one. Uh, I know what word you're... Okay, we'll think of it. Shit on the right word. <laughs> okay, starting now. The show's um, okay. I got a lot of this research from, of course, as you would assume, blackdahlia.web. And also, there's a website by a guy named Larry Harnish, uh, and his website is imharnish.com, and uh, he's the guy, he is the beloved actually guy that I went to after I wrote everything up, and it was like all the myths about this case that are not true, which you have to do these days, Mm -hmm. because everybody knows these stories so well, knows the myths so well, it's the reason I freaked out when I did Jack the Ripper in London, because as I was talking, I was like, but that's probably not true. And like the entire time I was like, I bet that's not true either. So um, thank God for Larry Harnish. He put up this website and it's like, that is a myth. It is simply unproven. It's like a dude that's so pissed that gossip has kicked up around a a like 70 year old cold case. Mm -hmm. God bless you, Larry. So here's the piece that I was trying to, that I said I was so excited about and I hoped you didn't know. Okay. It is 72 years to this night that the body of Elizabeth Short was found in Lemur Park. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking January 15th, 1947 is when she was found. It was the morning. Sorry, it was the morning. Okay, that makes me feel a little less creepy. Does it? No. How the fuck did I not know that? There's a possibility that some Sharpie at TNT is like, I know when we should do it. And then yes. like, as I'm typing it up, I'm like, oh my God. It's, that would make sense. Yeah. Okay. Now I'm glad it's raining. Right? Spooky. It's so creepy. So crazy. Okay. 72 years ago is when this all kicked off. Crazy. Um, now I should go into one of those lists that you would find at like a farmer's market where it's like, here's all the things that happened on this day in 1947 that I don't have. Bobby Darren had Mac and Knife. It's like that kind of shit. I don't have that for you at all. Oh, okay. Um, Elizabeth Short is born on July 29th, 1924 in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, Her parents moved to Medford, Massachusetts. Um, right? It's such, it's so gorgeous. Just a little burg. Um, with, uh, her parents and her four sisters, her father, Cleo, what he does for a living, he builds miniature golf courses. Oh, that's fun. What a joyous life. Until the horrible stock market crash of 1929 when he loses everything and overnight they become poor. You'd think that, like, a miniature golf course wouldn't have gotten, like, tangled up. In the crash. Oh, you wouldn't believe the dark money in miniature golf courses. <laughs> That's the next episode. <laughs> All the dirty mafia money that goes into building a huge dinosaur. Um, so, 
They go broke overnight. A year later, the father's, his name's Cleo, but I feel like I need to say the father. His car is found abandoned on the Charleston Bridge. The body is never recovered, but everyone believes that it was a suicide. Elizabeth is six years old when this happens. So, yeah. So her mom, um, Phoebe May, has to get a job as a bookkeeper, and then they move into a smaller apartment. And she basically, it's her and uh, her five daughters and she has to basically keep everybody afloat by herself holy crap yeah now on top of that elizabeth starts to develop lung problems so she has bad asthma then she gets bronchitis then she has to have lung surgery she ends up dropping out of high school sophomore year so the doctor recommends that elizabeth gets out of massachusetts during the winter which is good any doctor would recommend for anyone um and go down to miami for a, a warmer climate So she does that. She goes and stays with family friends. Um, Okay, so here is the first picture we have of Elizabeth Short. And this is her in high school. Oh, my goodness. Look at cutie. In 1942, ready for this twist Yes. Phoebe's mother gets an apology letter from her, what she thought was dead husband. But it turned out old Cleo just staged the suicide and moved on out to California to start over after the crash of 29. What a dick. I mean... He's like, you know what? This um, stock market crash has hit me really hard. So what I'm going to do is leave my five daughters and wife uh-huh. and go ahead and make it on my own. Yeah. And I'm going to make it easy on them by making them think I killed myself. Yes. <laughs> I'm just going to put a layer of intense tragedy on the top of it. And then good luck this winter. Mm-hmm. Oh, also the one has consumption. Okay. So... Uh, he had gone out to California. He moved to um, Mare Island, sh- or he moved to Vallejo and worked at Mare Island Shipyard, um, which is NorCal. Yes. Um, Vallejo, uh, a lot of Zodiac activity mm-hmm. around Vallejo. That's why you might, might know that city. Mm-hmm. I know it because it's about a half an hour away from my hometown, and it's basically the part of the North Bay that is one big marsh. If you like marshlands... Uh, gnats, mosquitoes, um, <laughs> short puddles of still water. <laughs> Vallejo, your next vacation needs to be at Vallejo. You need to head on over. There's also a marine world with many trapped marine animals. Oh, it sounds beautiful. It is the place where all dreams die. So, <laughs> Elizabeth Short, who is a person who probably has some of the worst luck of anyone I've ever read about. Yeah. She decides, she tells her mom, I'm going to go live with dad. She's 18. She's like, I'm going to California. So she goes to live with her father, who the last time she saw him, she was six. So she's like, it's going to be so great. He's a longshoreman. We'll get along fine. For one second, I really, I was stoked because my grandfather was a longshoreman, but he was a longshoreman in Oakland. But it was roughly the same time. I bet they were friends. That's what I was like having total Liz Short's dad and my grandpa fantasies. And then I was like, okay, first of all, what the fuck is wrong with you? Like, take a walk. Um... And also, my grandpa did it in the 30s, so it's a different time anyway. So, um, in, within a year, she moves out of his house, yeah. um, so it doesn't work out great. She moves in uh, with some friends in Lompoc, uh, two and a half hours north of L.A. here, um, and she gets a job at the base exchange at Camp Cook, which is now Vandenberg um, Air Force. Vandenberg, sorry. Yes, it's here for the Air Force. <laughs> They're, they're here tonight. They're all up in the balcony. Wouldn't that be amazing? You turn around, they're all their uniforms on. Hey, Lon. 
Um, okay, that doesn't last long. Soon she decides to move to Santa Barbara. Huh. That's, huh. A, that's a nice place. It's nice if you uh, breed golden retrievers. But like, I think for a 19-year-old who keeps getting kicked out everywhere and has bad lungs, it's not, it's not a great starter city, I would think. Fair, especially in the 30s. Right. It's the, uh, it's, the, it's the 40s because, and here's how we know, this is one of the more famous pictures of Elizabeth Short. Um, while she's in Santa Barbara, she gets arrested on September 23rd, 1943 for underage drinking. And that's when this picture of her was taken. Yes. Get it, girl. Right? Yeah. Every time I see a picture of her, uh, I want to get a perm. <laughs> Because she has insanely amazing hair. Yeah. Yeah. And also eyes that say, why don't you go fuck yourself? <laughs> it's a suggestion. You don't have to take it. And that's my, that's what I'm into. Um, okay. So she gets sent back to Medford, but to live with her mom. But she's like, here's the thing, though. I think I'm just going to go to Miami. So she skips out on Medford and goes to Miami. And there she meets... Major Matthew Gordon Jr. So he's a decorated Army Air Force officer in the Second Air Commando Group. And while they're dating, she knows him for a couple years actually. And while they're dating, he gets deployed to the China Burma India Theater of Operations in World War II. Um, so Major, somebody from the military, like, God damn this! I hate disrespect. I hate that theater. That theater. <laughs> that was one of the worst. So he gets deployed to major military action, the end of World War II. She tells her friends that he's written her a letter and proposed to her while he's over there. Um, she writes back and accepts. And, oh, he wrote the letter while he was recovering from his injuries uh, from a crash um, that he uh, survived in India. She accepts his proposal. Um, and then uh, on August 10th, 1945, Major Gordon is killed in a second plane crash. Oh. Man. Less than a week before the war ends. God. Um, That's rough. Sadder still. Here's, oh. Here they are together. Happy. I mean, young he, and free. He's hot. <laughs> yeah. And right. his amazing vision. Ugh. <laughs> he could see everything. <laughs> okay. So she's like, like a kind of like a widow, so young, yeah. brokenhearted. So she does what all the brokenhearted people in the world do, she moves to Los Angeles. Oh. So in... <laughs> Runyon, Runyon, my heart is broken, Runyon, solve it. Pick up the shit and make it work for me. <clears throat> so sorry, we didn't sound check that. And please don't clap for that, that is... <laughs> no, no, I, God damn you. So, July 1946, she moves to Los Angeles <clears throat> to visit Army Air Force Lieutenant Joseph Gordon Fickling. So, she's found a new guy. He's stationed at the Naval Reserve Air Base in Long Beach. She's going to do the commute. She's going to do the Long Beach commute romance, which it's, yeah, so we many, all know. So many great romances have happened up and down that highway. It's a rough one. You just want to keep your light, you, you keep your eyes on that. That oil refinery out in the distance. 
he better be worth this drive. <laughs> saying to yourself. You better have so many tattoos when I get there. Uh, she already knew him. She had dated him when she lived in Florida, so um, she was she was uh, knew him and was into it. I'm like, trying to great. Let's try this again. Yes, I'm out top. here. L.A. sucks. I yeah. better go visit someone I know. Here's a hot tip, though, ladies. Um, do not move around the country for a man whose job it is to move around the country. <laughs> You're already married god bless that's great move all the fuck around get new dishes everywhere you go not in the dating don't do it dating style it doesn't make sense now you're like i better go to santa barbara mm -hmm. no okay good to know all right here's just a fun picture of uh elizabeth short on the beach with her friends that's the hair i'm talking about that's a, that's a fucking good hair yeah Good ahead of hair. So Betty gets a job as a waitress um, when she gets to LA. She gets an apartment behind the Florentine Gardens nightclub, which is on Hollywood Boulevard. Oh yeah, uh, right, a classic. Um, there are rumors that she was she had dreams of becoming an actor, um, but she had no known credits, which is meaningless. She could have wanted to be an actor really bad and just never gotten a job, like most of us here in Los Angeles. <laughs> Um, why are we basing anything on credits? You can put anything on IMDb. That's how the internet works. Um, they also said, and this is kind, this is something that happened after the fact, and obviously it's, it reflects um, how awful and vicious the press was back then. I mean, it was especially horrifying in the 30s and 40s where, and it was of course the time we talk about all the time where like the press shows up at crime scenes at the same time as the police. So they're like, hey, I just took a picture of this if you want to get over here and get this, get this t taken care of. There's a lot of that kind of action. Mm -hmm. um, so in the story of the Black Dahlia, she's often referred to um, as like an, a non-working actress. Um, they say she dated a lot. She went out with a lot of men. They talk about her going out with married men, that she drank at bars a lot, that she had a lot of sex. To that I say, fucking good, good. <laughs> At least she got to have some fun, truly. I mean, Jesus Christ. Um, so, <clears throat> okay, so now we're up to the night she disappeared. It's January 9th, 1947. And she's just back from, she'd just gone on a quick trip to San Diego with a 25-year-old married salesman um, named Robert Red Manley. Um, he claims that he dropped Elizabeth off at the Biltmore Hotel in downtown LA, um, where she was planning to meet one of her sisters who had just flown in from Boston. Um, and members of the staff of the Biltmore did recall seeing her there um, on the lobby phone. Uh, she was also reportedly seen at a nearby, uh, the nearby Crown Grill cocktail lounge soon after. Um, six days later, on the morning of January 15th, 1947, a young housewife named Betty Bursinger is walking her three-year-old daughter up to the shoe repair shop uh, in Lemert Park. Um, when she uh, crosses the street, she's going up, and there's a bunch of um, empty lots because there was a big uh, housing boom, and then it all slowed down during the war. And so there was, like, empty lots around. They hadn't built the houses yet. Mm -hmm. um, and so she sees what she believes to be a mannequin. Um, laying in the grass in the empty lot in front of her. But the more steps she takes toward it, the more she realizes it is not a mannequin. It is 
the naked, bisected, exsanguinated, mutilated, and explicitly posed body of a 22-year-old woman. Betty Bursinger screams, grabs her daughter, runs to a nearby house, and calls the police. And we have a picture of Betty Bursinger right there. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. <clears throat> now, this is not when she called the police that. <laughs> this is not January 15th, 1947. I mean, she looks really calm for doing it. <laughs> she screamed it all out on the street. Yeah. And, and now she's, she's like, with... Hello. Hello. Is this Murray Hill 25703? <laughs> Uh, the two responding officers arrive. They see what Betty said was there. They confirm that that is actually what's happening and immediately call for backup, which is doesn't surprise me at all. Um, so when detectives arrive, they actually start screaming because now all these people, you know, from the screaming and the hubbub, all these people have started gathering around. And of course, the press is there. The second the police know, the press knows. So. When the detectives come, they have to actually like get everybody out of the crime scene. People are walking around that vacant lot, walking all around near the body. And they have to clear the entire area so that they can um, uh, look at it. <laughs> What's the word? <laughs> look at it. They can look at it. Investigate? Thank you. Um, okay. So Detective Je uh, Lieutenant Jesse Haskins, who was um, one of the, those responding detectives, he describes the condition of the body when he first arrived at the crime scene. Quote, the body was lying with the head towards the north, the feet towards the south, the left leg was five inches west of the sidewalk, the body was lying face up, and the severed part was jogged over about 10 inches. The upper half of the body um, from the lower half. There was a tire track right up against the curbing, and there was what appeared to be a possible bloody heel mark in the tire track. And on the curbing, which is very low, there was one spot of blood. And there was an empty paper cement sack laying in the driveway, and it also had a spot of blood on it. It had been brought there from another location. The body was clean and appeared to have been washed. Okay, so I'm going to show you the least bad crime scene photo from this murder. Uh, if you choose to go online and look at Black Dahlia crime scene photos, don't do that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, many of you already have. You're like, it's too late. It's burned into my brain. I can see it when I close my eyes. Yeah. They're some of the worst, most horrifying pictures, and also most, um, uh, like, debasing pictures I've ever seen. And so this one is, if you are uh, squeamish in any way, staff, anybody, people that don't want to be here tonight, <laughs> please look away. So this is one of the more famous yeah. pictures, and the problem with this picture is the longer you look at it, you realize that's too long of a body, and you start to kind of be able to put together what's happening underneath that blanket. So from the side, this doesn't look too crazy, but on the top, you see that the, the top of the body is all the way next to the bottom of the body. So I mean, it looks, it's, it's, it's very upsetting looking. It's definitely the one I saw as a kid and was like, what the fuck? This one or that bad one? This one. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Where it's the kind of like, what's wrong with this picture? Where you're like, it's, I get it, it's a murder scene. Yeah, yeah. And then you're kind of, the more you look at it, you're like, this is bad. Okay. Yeah. 
The, uh, thank you. <laughs> Could <laughs> I idea. take it down? <laughs> there's a, also, it's it's a bummer because there's a lot of people that just for, com you know, the horror comparison have done side by sides with a picture of her beautiful face when she was alive mm -hmm. and then the picture of her from the autopsy of the way her face, because her face was terribly mutilated, as many people know. And that also, just be careful. Please be careful with these pictures out there. They're awful. So the body went to the morgue for the coroner to examine. He reports the body's five feet, five inches tall. She weighs 115 pounds. She has light blue eyes, brown hair, and badly decayed teeth. Um, there are ligature marks on her ankles, wrists, and neck, and an irregular laceration with superficial tissue loss on her right breast. She has superficial lacerations on the right forearm, the left upper arm, and the lower left side of the chest. She has multiple lacerations on the face and head, including, and this is the, the very infamous part, um, he cut a three inch long gash on the right side of her face and a two and a half inch long gash on the left side of her face to, as, so as to cut a big smile into her face. Um, <clears throat> and there's also noted bruising on the front and right side of her scalp with a small amount of bleeding. Um, in, this, in the subarachnoid space uh, in, on the right side, which is consistent to blows on the head. Um, so contrary to popular belief, and this is something I thought was total, like, Facts. Fa yeah. Thank you, facts. <laughs> oh, man, the most basic words. <laughs> God, I'm here for you. Espionage, fat, can't do any of it. Um, her hair had not been washed and set. Which is oh. something I heard and always believed. It had been washed, though, and it was still wet, I read. That's not true? No. Her okay. body had been washed. Okay. And I think that's how that, that um, got... Because also, this was that time where it was like... Um, the press was so exploitive yeah. and they would write anything and it, they say that a lot of those stories got started by the, you know, basically the facts getting spun out. Sure. So her, the body had been washed... Um, clean, so they couldn't find any fluids. There's no sperm found on the body. Her pubic hair had been removed. There were numerous cuts and crisscross patterns across her pubic area. And most luckily, and thank God, most of her injuries are believed to have been sustained post mortem. Although, because of the ligature marks, they do know that she was tortured for mm. days. Um, the official cause of death was hemorrhage and shock. Um, and it didn't go unnoticed uh, that the bisection of the body was a clean professional job. In sworn testimony before the Los Angeles County Grand Jury, Detective Harry Hansen said he believed the bisection was done by, quote, a very fine surgeon. So it was a, it was a, a the cut was not, um, you know, vicious. It didn't, it was all very clean and precise and done uh, at, like a medical procedure. Um, so they basically have to, because they don't, she's an unknown person. There's nothing on her person at all. So they have to take fingerprints. Um, they, they take fingerprints off her hand. They send them to um, the FBI in Washington. And that's when they identify her as Elizabeth Short of Medford, Massachusetts. Um, so there are rumors, there's a lot of different rumors about how the Black Dahlia got named. Um, some people say that there were people in a soda shop and it was basically just they made it up in a soda shop. Mm -hmm. um, there are people, certain reporters of the time claim to have named her. Um, the, the one I like to believe is because I really love Aggie Underwood, who is the, um, she was the city desk editor um, and, and one of the first 
um, newspaper, uh, you know, like city desk editors in the country. And um, she was one of the first true cr or crime reporters on the scene. And they say that she had her photographer run out and go buy a flower so she could leave it there and then be like, it's the Black Dahlia. Oh like goodness. she basically saw the body, knew it was gonna be this huge story that wasn't gonna go away and knew that like a nickname should be coined. Hmm. Um, you know, there's not proof for any of those, but I vote for the third. Um, other new, There were other newspapers though that named it the werewolf murder because she was attacked so viciously and terribly um, and that act didn't stick. It was, it's in, uh, there's in a, a couple articles that I saw that described it that way. Um, so then once she's identified, the police go around and they start talking to all the possible eyewitnesses from the night that she disappeared. Um, and they then release this special police bulletin. And so this is basically to find out anything else, uh, any other information that they can get on Elizabeth Short. Um, and then it reads, last seen January 9th, when she got out of a car at the Biltmore Hotel. At that time, she was wearing a black suit, no collar on coat, white fluffy blouse, black suede high heels, nylon stockings, white gloves, a full-length beige coat, carrying a plastic handbag with two handles, in which she had a black address book. Subject readily makes friends with both sexes and frequented cocktail bars and night spots. Me what the fuck too. is that in there for? <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. Um, leaving the car, she went into the lobby of the Biltmore and was last seen there. In conversation, subject readily identified herself as Elizabeth or Beth Short. Um, okay, so when when the press then hit, they, the stories got crazier and worse. News items would describe her as a con artist, a drifter, a tease, a party girl, and a prostitute. Um, but the final report given at the Los Angeles grand jury stated explicitly that she was not a sex worker of any kind um, or an actor. Um, <laughs> same death. Of the eight or so four actors were like, come on, my auditions. Um, of the eight or so uh, headlines that I looked at, um, only one of them did not mention her sexuality or her like sexual. Uh, it was it was always party girl um, that or they talked about her dating married men in like in the picture. It would be like girl murdered, twenty two year old girl murdered. But then the the little writing under the picture was just basically like she loved to party. Exactly, the slut shaming opportunity is super crazy uh, to read that now. The only one that didn't do that was a newspaper from the Boston area, and they called her their hometown girl, Aww. which is, yeah, very sad and what she deserved. Of course, the story's huge, and there's so many reporters on it. William Randolph Hearst had so many reporters. He was just, like, paying anybody to get any information that they could. And so he then sets up a deal with the LAPD where he's saying, I will share the information they find with you. Um, if you give us, let us break all the stories. Wow. So you have to give us information you find out back, and then we get to break these stories. So there was a lot of press and a lot of police-directed press along the way um, because of that deal. And I'm and, sure a lot of people got paid off, too. A lot of the, like, um, everyone. Everyone's getting paid. Sure. Okay, this is hor horrible. So there was a reporter at the Herald Express who, it was his job to find... Um, 
Elizabeth Short's mother in Medford. Oh, I know this one. Yeah, it's so awful. And he he finds her and he goes to call her, but he wants a, a scoop about what the family's like and what she was like when she was growing up and what her life is like. And he knows that if he leads that phone call by saying, your daughter has been terribly murdered, that the mother's gonna start crying and not get off the phone. So instead, he says, your daughter has won a beauty contest. And then Mrs. Short goes on to hold forth about how lovely her daughter is and how she's like made her own questions life. and shit. Yeah, like he he milked her for information, Ugh. got the story, and then told her. And she was so shocked and so in disbelief that they actually had to call um, the Medford police and send police to her apartment so that she would believe that the news was true because she was just like this can't be true. Oh my god. Um, yeah. And maybe she was just like, I can't believe a fucking reporter would do something that gross. That's the worst thing ever. Truly. Yeah. Um, so, <clears throat> so, uh, on January 23rd, eight days after the body has been found, a man claiming to be the killer calls the editor of the examiner and he says that he's going to mail them Elizabeth Short's belongings. So the next day a package arrives and it's it contains her birth certificate, business cards, an address book, photos, and a letter um, that the killer, supposed killer wrote with the individual cut out uh, letters and words like this. Like our logo. Like our logo. And it says, here are Dahlia's belongings. Um, and then here are Dahlia's <gasps> belongings. So that's wow. the letter. And then those are personal pictures over there. That's a telegram that she got. There's like postcards in there. That's her birth certificate. So it's almost like as if someone stole her purse and just sent all it, or like maybe her suitcase or something. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Holy crap. So whoever this person, whoever sent it, um, you know, clearly either yeah. was the killer or was right there in it. And also they couldn't get any fingerprints off of any of this stuff because it was all coated in gasoline. Oh, so right. they, yeah, they couldn't trace it um, at all. So essentially, there are over 150 sus uh, suspects questioned, um, and many more false confessions were made. There was a bunch of letters sent like that. You can see them online too, where people are just sending in words cut out that say like, "Don't try to find me. I killed her." And yeah. all the stuff. Words like, "Then don't fucking send the letter." Um, <laughs> But there was a $10,000 reward for information that would lead to the killer. So everybody, you know, a lot of people are trying to get in the mix. In, um, and the case essentially goes cold. In 1950, there's a radio show called Somebody Knows, which now I just read about it. And now I want to listen to the show so bad because oh it was basically like the earliest version of Unsolved Mysteries, like a radio version of it. And they were they basically told the entire case and they were like... If you know anything, call this number. Holy shit. Um, to this day, 72 years later, this case is still unsolved, and it is one of the most famous, talked about, and theorized murders of this century. And that is the Elizabeth Short side of this. Wow. I'm glad that it's awful. You had to say all the fucked up things. I mean. And I didn't. Okay, well, so I'm going to talk to you guys about one of the main the suspect and when I first heard about this a long time ago I was like bullshit he's not the fucking and now I kind of think he totally did it you really I after researching this I'm like this is him really yes 
So this is, and okay, let me, here we go. I got a lot of information from The Guardian. A woman named Alexis Sobel Fitz wrote this great article about it. A lot of good info. So here, let's go to 1999. Here we are. Uh, a former... <laughs> I have really thin eyebrows. Oh my god. Just yes. like speed-plucked eyebrows like you wouldn't believe. Yeah, a pierced fucking lip that's gonna be a scar for the rest of my life. <laughs> and I'm standing here <laughs> yeah. at an old 97s concert right. crying because of beer. Yeah. I, for me, it was at the drive-in because <laughs> I was emo. Okay. Okay. Where were we? Oh, yes. 99. Former LAPD homicide detective named Steve Hodel. He, uh, he finds himself sorting through his late father's belongings. His uh, dad is Dr. George Hodel. Stephen never, Stephen had never been close with his father. <laughs> That's not true. That's not true at all. Um, his dad had abandoned the, George had abandoned the family shortly after Steve's ninth birthday. And he'd been married five times, had 11 children between all those fucking wives. Oh, wow. Truly. And um, so we probably didn't have a lot of private time to spend with each of those kids, I'm guessing. <laughs> so Steve was one of the ones that he, whatever. Okay. Every two weeks you got to go to the park with him. Yeah, for five minutes. Yeah. So so Steve, ex-LAPD, homicide detective, is going through stab shit. He finds an old photo album tucked away in a box, and in the back of the album, there's two pictures of a young woman that catches his eye. And the photos are portraits of a beautiful woman with really dark black curly hair, really fair skin. Um, and when Steve saw the photos, having no understanding of what's to come, just immediately was like, that looks like the Black Dahlia, immediately. Mm. Mm. Um, so he starts to look into his father's dark past, and becomes convinced that he killed Elizabeth Short. So he writes a book called The Black Dahlia Avenger, A Genius for Murder, um, in which he studies the case from scratch, reading witness interviews, reading news, he's like fucking, he's a homicide detective, and he homicide detectives this case. Uh, all over it. <laughs> he just goes to town. Yeah, yeah, he's like, here are my skills, I'm gonna use them. Um, he files a Freedom of Information Act to retrieve the FBI files on the murder, which I just want to sit there and read forever, and um, all this other information that was collected on his fucking shady dad. So, that'd, be, that'd be insane I know. to read an FBI file about your dad. Yeah. Marty, what do you think? <laughs> grass, grass, grass. Yeah, that's about it. Uh, urban camping and, and weed. <laughs> Shit, sorry, dad. Um, my dad's just like, he's drink, he's drank a whole, the whole country's worth of Budweiser. <laughs> just so much Budweiser. <laughs> oh, sorry, really quick. We've already said this, but we're showing you the pilot of the show, but we also have a special guest that's coming out after the pilot right. um, that we're very, very excited to talk to. So I just, that just popped into my head. I wanted to make sure you knew. Good idea. Okay. Good call. Right. Okay, so here he is, the homicide detective. Uh, he files freedom, blah, 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 blah. Okay, when the book is complete in the early 2000s, like 2003, he sends a copy of the book to a columnist at the LA Times named Steve Lopez. Steve Lopez is like, okay, I'm gonna write a column about this, but I don't wanna be lying, so I'm gonna fact check it. Um, and he uh, asks the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office for more information on the murder. 
Um, and the DA's office gives Lopez access to a file that Lieutenant Frank Jemison, one of the original officers investigating the murder, had left behind in a safe in the basement of the district's attorney's office. So this fucking thing had been hidden since like 1950. Yes. And in 2003 or four. Somebody knows. Steve Lopez is the luckiest murderino alive. For real. When he gets fucking past this thing. How, he's like, 16 left. <laughs> Would your heart would just be racing as you open that safe? I'm guessing might have a key. I'm thinking of a high school locker. I'm sorry. They probably have a more advanced system there. I didn't know what you were counting. I was just agreeing. I thought you meant like files, 16 files. Okay. Didn't you, you couldn't tell from my space work that that no. was an up and down uh, high school locker safe? Okay. It was like a uh, whatever. <laughs> the file contains photographs, newspaper clippings, and several hundred pages of typed interview notes on the case compiled by this Jemison fellow. And in the notes, Steve Lopez finds something that he's not expecting. It's the Los Angeles Police Department was focused on six suspects, six main suspects. They whittled it down in the Black Dahlia investigation. And on the top of that fucking list is Steve's dad, George Hodel. Could you imagine? What if you saw that? Put your dad's name on the top of the fucking <laughs> shit. Marty Hardstark? No. Here's a picture of Marty Hardstark. No. Here's a, here's a picture of George Hodel. Oh. I mean, immediately he did it. Steven. Right? Steven, do you see? <laughs> this is an intervention for Steven's mustache. <laughs> What I'm saying is you got to bring it in on the sides a little bit. <laughs> I mean, talk about creepy. I, he also looks like he could own a great Italian restaurant. Oh, yeah. Like, I want to say he has dead eyes and the thing I always like to say about killers. Yeah, yeah. But there is something about him that's like, uh, we, <laughs> we <laughs> Clams Casino. <laughs> There's a real Clams Casino feeling yeah. about this guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Okay. So that's him. Okay. And then, okay, so dude, who is, who is this dude? I wrote, who is this dude? <laughs> so Dr. George Hill Hodel Jr. was born in October 1900. Fucking old. Whoa. I know. He was raised in South Pasadena. Uh, he was... Where all the bad ones come from. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, yeah, upscale family. I don't remember the word for it. Uh, he's super Rich. smart. <laughs> yes. <laughs> They're no uh, Miracle Mile family. <laughs> well, the word's espionage. That's right. <laughs> right. He scores 186 on an IQ test when he's, like, young, which is fucking high, you guys. And uh, Is it? What's the highest? I think that's pretty close. <laughs> I think it's, like, Einstein. I don't know. I think it's up there. Uh, average is, like, 105. Really fucking oh. smart is 130. Oh. Right. We've all taken them at our boring desk jobs, right? And been really disappointed by our number. Anyone? I could have sworn I was a genius, right? I really thought I was smart. When you realize you're an average person, it's a really disappointing moment in your life. Not for me, I got 150, but... Uh, there's nothing, and also there's nothing sadder for a person who lived before the internet existed and told lie upon lie everywhere they went. And then the internet came out, people were like, no, that's not true. Like, I looked it up right there, and you're like, oh... I'm just trying to pass some stuff along. Um, 
Oh, he's also a musical prodigy. He's a smarty pants. He graduates high school at 15, goes to Caltech in Pasadena, um, but is forced to leave the university after a year due to a fucking sex scandal involving a professor's wife who he gets pregnant. Whoa. Yeah. As a student. Yeah. And he's, remember, graduated at 15. So, I so he's, he's 16? Like, yeah. So he's <laughs> always been... Not really. What? Oh, no. <laughs> not... Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> uh, that's illegal. So... Um, Wow, he's got right to it. Yeah, so he gets out of that job. Eventually, he uh, he does become a reporter, and he becomes one of those reporters going to crime scenes with cops that we talked about. What? Yeah, he's wow. like one of those for a while. Eventually, he goes uh, and gets a pre-med degree at um, the University of California, Berkeley, and is later um, the, the, the highly acclaimed University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine. He becomes a surgeon. Ooh. Um, <laughs> And he's, uh, like, you almost said that like people would fall for it, that that was really happening in the room. Uh, 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 calm down, everybody. It's not that scary. Wow, they got really into that part. Easy. Um, he eventually, uh, he's a surgeon eventually specializing in sexually transmitted diseases. And he actually did that for the city. So uh, he was really into inner circles in the city. Okay. Okay, we'll get to why that's important. Okay, in 1945, George, his name is, com comes under suspicion um, for the murder of his secretary, Ruth Spaulding. She had died of a drug overdose, but George was suspected of having murdered her in order to cover up his financial fraud. But it isn't until October 1949 that he comes under police scrutiny for the Black Dahlia murder. So he had this crazy, insane, awful sex scandal and trial, which it's, I don't want to, it's a spoiler alert in the show, so I'm not going to go into it. It's a fucking story of its own, and he's a monster. Um, and this is when the LAPD starts investigating. So they're investigating all known suspected or suspected sex criminals at this time for the murder. So he's in on that because of this trial. Okay. So they're like, what's up with him? Well, his medical degree made him a good suspect, of course, because um, it was uh, hypothesized that whoever bisected Elizabeth Short's body had some degree of surgical skill. And it shows that um, she, she had been given a... Did you say hepacorporectomy? Yes, I did. I said it a couple times. <laughs> I just kept saying it. <laughs> oh, I wasn't paying attention. So it's is that the thing about the ovaries? No. This okay. is the thing where... Because um, that's a myth. Oh, the ovaries. The person, the ovaries is it's a, a procedure that slices the body beneath the lumbar spine, the only spot where the body can be severed in half without breaking a bone. Oh, right. So that's the name of the way he bisected her. Exactly. There's an actual medical procedure that is taught that's called whatever the fuck you just said. <laughs> um, I refuse to say it again. It, which is why people initially thought it was a surgeon, because it's like something that is taught. Right. And it was taught in the 1930s when George had been in medical school. All right. So... So uh, he lives in the John Soden house, which is also known as the Franklin house. Which you guys, if you're, since you're from LA, you fucking know this insane house. When you're driving up Franklin towards Los Feliz, there's suddenly this like Mayan temple happening <laughs> in those really expensive houses on the left. And you're like, what the fuck is that? Well, um, it's actually, it was, um, it's, uh, was built in 1926 in, um, Los, Los Feliz by Lloyd Wright, who was the eldest son of Frank Lloyd Wright, 
that's got to be a bummer to be named, <laughs> to be named that and yeah. then become a and you're architect. Like, turn, I don't like these blueprints that much. Yeah. Do you have any of your dad's stuff? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't want that void, right? I didn't want this Mayan temple. I know. <laughs> um, so yeah, okay. Here's here's it. You know, you've yeah. seen it. Creepy. Crazy. Amazing. So good. Dying to go in there. Yes. We've got to. And it's right by the Los Feliz Murder Mansion, too. <laughs> Creepy. Again. Okay. We just should knock on every door in Los Feliz and be like, this is also a creepy house. What's going on in here? Yeah. Light meth? Anyone, anything like meth? <laughs> just some light meth. Don't worry about it. I mean, everyone knows that's south of Franklin. North of Franklin is just the old-timey suspicious murders. Okay. So... George, the Dr. George, is friends with a lot of celebrities, and he throws these crazy, extravagant, drug-fueled parties like always happen in the 40s that you read about. Sex <laughs> parties, you know, swinger shit, and then a lot of elite Angelinos and Hollywood stars. I wrote that. No, I didn't. <laughs> Copied and pasted. Um, so friends like John Houston, and um, he was good friends with artist Man Ray, who was also the family's photographer. So they all hung out at the house all the time. Wow. Yeah. So uh, they, they, the task force bugs his house um, in February 1950 for a month. They just, I think probably pretty illegally, just fucking wired that house up and listened to it <laughs> down the street in a basement. <laughs> Truly. Um, and then, so what the buggings revealed, among other things, was that uh, he, he is doing illegal abortions, which were a felony at the time and giving payoffs to law enforcement officials, I think because of that. And um, also they get some uh, some suspected talkings of <laughs> uh, his possible involvement in the death of his secretary, Anne Elizabeth Short. Whoa. So here's what he says. Supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia. They can't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead. They thought there was something fishy. Anyway, now they may have figured it out. Killed her. Maybe I did kill my secretary. It's like straight up. Uh, Who's he talking to? <laughs> Who is on the other side of that monologue? I don't know. There's just like a maid, like, uh huh. <laughs> well, I'm done here, doctor. I'm just gonna back out slowly like a crab. <laughs> Ruth Spalding, who we've talked about. So police had suspected him, uh, George, of murdering her in 1945. And because he was present when she fucking overdosed. And then right after, had burned some of her papers before the police were called. Red fucking flag. Do you know, was, sorry to ask this, was that also in that house? I think, so. yeah, he lived there in 1945 to 1950, so I think so. Well, I mean, her death happened there? I, I, it might have been at his office. I don't know. I know. Haunted as fuck. Yes, for real. So the case is dropped due to lack of evidence, or it, does he paid off? Paid off. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but documents are later found that indicate that she, uh, that his secretary, about to publicly accuse George uh, Hodel of in, um, intentionally misdiagnosing patients and billing them for uh, laboratory tests, medical treatments, and prescriptions not needed. So he was sh a shady doctor. Wow. Our friend Steve, his son, uh, believes that Short may have been one of his father's patients, and he did run a venereal disease clinic in downtown Los Angeles, 
where she, where the Biltmore Hotel was. Mm. Not, that's, I don't know if it was anywhere near that. I'm not trying to say it was in the Biltmore Hotel. I think the Biltmore had a VD clinic <laughs> right next to that famous bar. Yes. The it's, idea that they're just going to connect a VD clinic to it is the thing that sells the most paper. Right. Well, they, but this, but it, I think it went away. Well, I don't know. Let's fight about it. <laughs> I just wish we could fight about it. Oh, this is the fight you want to see so bad. Yeah, this is it. This is the fist fight. It's just I start crying. <laughs> and then you start crying, and then we no, have to do it John L. Sullivan style. Just stand over here for 20 minutes. Um, so uh, in the recordings, there's also audio of a... Uh, it's quiet, quiet, quiet. And then a woman screams loudly twice. And then, it's, and it sounds like it's coming from the basement. The end of the fucking screaming. Is on the cop's audio recording? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I know. Um, so for his book, Steve sent, sent the photographs that he was like, I found these in my dad's shit. Is this the Black Dahlia? To a facial recognition expert. Um, so one of them, the facial recognition expert was like, it's not her. And the other one, it's inconclusive. So here are those. I think that's the one that's inconclusive because it looks, I could see that one, but it might be that. It's not her. I know. I it's know, not, that's it's not. Why, that's why I was like, it's not him initially. It's, I mean, but, I think it's two different women. Well, yes. Also, I think he had a woman issue. Yeah. So. No, that he fucking totally did. Yeah. So he, was, he could have pictures of anybody. It doesn't disprove that he didn't kill Elizabeth Short. Yeah. Not to slut shame him, but he was a perverted he sex He fucking baby. fucked everybody. <laughs> All right, so that's well, probably not her, but but there's other shit. Um, the letters sent to the press and police from the Black Dahlia Avenger, which is what he called himself, a man claiming to be the killer, had a resemblance to his dad's handwriting, and handwriting expert determined that there was a strong likelihood that his father's handwriting matched the script on some of the notes. And in the archives of UCLA, Steve found a folder containing receipts for contracting work on his childhood home, the fucking Mayan temple. Ooh. Okay, the receipts show that a purchase was made a few days before Elizabeth Short's murder of 10 five-pound bags of cement, uh -oh. the same size and brand found near her body that you just mentioned. Yes, there's a, there was a bag, there's a cement bag yeah. in the driveway next to the body. With a drop with of blood. With one drop of blood on it. That's right. So uh, they think that the killer used... I'm restating that like I'm the one that discovered this <laughs> <laughs> Years, 72 years later, yeah. Karen Kilgarrett. Oh my god, I put it together. You said cement, and I also said cement. Therefore, I solved this crime. <laughs> Thank you. Good job. Um, so, Steve also found a report from the grand jury from 1951 where Lieutenant Frank Jemison says that one of George's so-called rumors, so he had like people stay at his house all the time because it's amazing, um, identified Elizabeth Short as one of his girlfriends, but it's sketchy. Uh, this woman, Lillian, said that George spent time around the Biltmore Hotel as well. Whatever. Okay. Then he's friends with this dude, Man Ray, our fucking friend, who is <laughs> not our friend. In 1934, this is just a tidbit, but this is one of his um, paintings or photographs. Uh, uh oh. Okay, and okay. that's like his good friend, but doesn't it look like it's posed the way at the top of her? Yes. Okay. Because her arms were. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You're not buying it. Okay. Well, no, sorry, because the way you set that up, I thought it was going to be a body that had the top half here and the bottom half oh, here. Oh, no, that would be amazing. I was going to scream directly into this microphone. 
<laughs> I mean, there's another painting too of his that they're like, it's the same. And I, it didn't, it was so not that I didn't post it, but whatever. I mean, I bet you though, at this point, Steve Hodel that's looking into his own father, yeah. who already probably knows his dad's a creep it, just by firsthand experience. Yeah. Every single thing he's picking up is like, holy shit. This could be connected. Yeah, you totally. would be that way because there's enough, there's plenty there anyway. There is, yeah. Um, so by 1950, Lieutenant Jemison believed that he had gathered enough evidence to charge Dr. Hodel. He was allegedly about to arrest him for the for Elizabeth Short's murder when fucking Hodel skipped town without his family abandoning Steve here, um, where he, he moved to the Philippines and he lived there for the next 40 years. Mm -hmm. No extradition from the old Philippines? Well, they didn't have enough fucking uh, evidence. Is oh, one, right. right? So investigators did think, though, they believed that the case was solved and that he was the killer. A lot of them did, though they didn't have enough evidence to go to trial. But uh, Steve doesn't think his father was ever going to be arrested since he had protection in the form of insider knowledge and dirt on higher-ups, since he reportedly ran a high-end abortion business, which was a felony back then. Um, so he was privy to all these sexual disease histories as well of the rich and powerful and lost. Like he, he knew, of, he knew every dirty secret. He had a town, lot of basically. shit on a lot of people, yeah, including pros cops, prosecutors, celebrities. So he could have used that as blackmail. Yeah, um, and he also thinks that the Soden House is where Elizabeth was killed and her body surgically bisected there. He thinks it's at that house, and I think they found like a secret room, or they think it's in the basement. Um, a police cadaver dog and soil analysis test conducted in 2014 by a forensic anthropologist confirms that the soil samples from the rear of the residence were, quote, specific for human remains. Oh. But it was like, it was like recorded for a ghost hunting TV show. So <laughs> take that as you will. If you wear big necklaces, you'll believe this. Yeah. <laughs> Those guys love a big necklace. They Truly. love the dark. That's right. And big analysis. Uh, another mysterious case. Okay, wait. But I'm, that is huge in and of itself. Yeah. You don't, that human remains in your backyard is not common. Right. I guess it wasn't, it wasn't big enough for the LAPD to actually excavate or anything like that. So who knows? They would but have to find something. Right. Yeah. Right. So there's another mysterious case, that of um, Jean Spangler. She was an actress who disappeared on the evening of October 7th, 1949. Um, the night of her disappearance, she told her sister-in-law that she was going to meet with her ex before going to work um, as an extra on a film set. Been there. It's very depressing. <laughs> uh, two days later, her tattered purse is discovered near the Ferndale entrance of Griffith Park, which I Google map for you guys, and it's <laughs> less than a mile from the Snowden house. Um, and inside her purse was a letter that read, Kirk, can't wait any longer, going to see Dr. Scott. So they think that, uh, that she had gone to get an abortion, possibly. And, you know, people who think that he killed Elizabeth Short think that he killed her, too. Um, and it would make sense if he went under a false name, probably. Right, yeah. right. So, okay, all right. So then, recently on October 23rd, 
no, wait, in October 2018, which just happened, there was a handwritten letter found by um, a, a dead undercover informant for the LAPD during the 1940s. His name was W. Glenn Martin. His granddaughter finds this letter that he wrote that was that said, don't open unless something bad happens to my teenage daughters, essentially. And then when she opens it, uh, the, the letter that had been written on October 25th, 1948, said that this someone with the initials G.H., George Hodel or Georgia Hardstark. <laughs> it could be either. Right? Um, was the, was the murderer, and that he had been a um, a undercover informant who was friends with George. And so, sorry, that was a sealed letter. Uh -huh. from, wow. Uh huh. And so, although you can. Yeah. Steam open and reseal letters all the time. Truly. Yeah. I mean, it's I fucking, still love it. If it's true, it's fucking fascinating. Yes, it is. So he was so scared that George had found out that he was an informant that he wrote this letter that said, if anything happens to my daughters, because he, he was thinking that if his daughters get killed in, um, you know, as a Griffith Park <laughs> retribution. Yes. Um, yeah, open it and I'll tell everything. Anyways, everyone thinks he did it. <laughs> Nobody thinks he did it, depending on what article you read. Um, let's see. Okay, and so, um, so basically, this this show that we're about to watch is I didn't realize this until I was doing research. It's based on the memoir called One Day She'll Darken and it's written by the the real granddaughter of this fucking psychopath. And she also create uh, is credited as a writer for all six for all six episodes. Nice. So this is just this crazy fucking story and it's all kind of true and real. Yeah. You know, and for Hollywood in Hollywood ways. And it's really fascinating. Yeah, so the people that we're, we're about to show you this episode now, and um, you guys probably know most of this, but the, the, the young girl that this episode is like basically based on is actually, um, is it Flora? F Fauna. Fauna, damn it. <laughs> You, <laughs> you were so close. Damn it. Um, and that, so that's George Hodel. Yes. And then, so we're going to watch the show now that like kind of oh. delves right into it. Yeah. So excited. Yeah. We're really excited. And yes. just for general, general information, um, this show is directed by Patty Jenkins, who directed Wonder Woman. Um, it has got an all-star cast, including, for all you pine nuts out there, Chris Pine is the star. Um, and we're super excited that we get to show it to you tonight, so please enjoy. And afterwards, we're going to come out real yes. quick and have a Q&A with someone from... Not a Q&A, we're going to interview. Right. <laughs> uh, it's going to be fun. We'll be back. Have fun. We're going to watch this with you guys. Yes. I am the knight. Yes. Episode one, I am the knight on TNT. And it's a secret, only you guys have seen it. Don't us. tell people word for word exactly what happened in that episode <laughs> on the internet. So we're very excited because we have the actor who played Dr. George Hodel, the, uh, yes, the creep at the bus station, um, the amazingly talented Mr. Jefferson Mays is here with us tonight. Should we sit? Yes, you sit in the middle. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for being here. That was... I, should we move forward and find our light? Yeah, let's find our light. 
fine. Come on, you're a Broadway guy. You know that stuff. <laughs> um, so you, that was incredible, and yes. you played George Hodel. Of course. <laughs> How much of, like did you know about him before? I, I, I knew very little, and I alas, I had seen the crime scene photos of the. Uh, yeah. Of the what hemi corporectomy? Uh-huh. Uh huh. <laughs> oh, you know how to and, pronounce uh, that. <laughs> and um, so that was that was it. And then I delved into Stephen Hotel's uh, memoir of mm -hmm. his father. Um, and uh, but it was it's very odd because we never had the entire series at our disposal. Mm -hmm. We were just given one script at a time. So I never knew what was going to happen next. It was kind of like life, I guess. <laughs> but, it is uh, a lot like that. So you basically were just responsible for Dr. Hodel and the scenes that were Right, out. just the scenes that were immediately before me. So I had no idea what twists and turns the uh, series would take. Amazing. Yeah. And what would you say, this is like a cheesy talk show question, but what was like, was there a creepy um, aspect to playing him or is there part of it that bothered you? Strangely, no. <laughs> um, you're right. Because, no, when you're playing a villain, um, they don't think they're villainous. They right. think they're uh, behaving reasonably <laughs> and uh, with a sense of entitlement. And it's everyone else who has the problem. Yeah. So, um, so there's a wonderful feeling of liberation by being sort of evil all day. And it makes you a much nicer person in life, I think. <laughs> Um, and did you guys shoot in the Soden house? We did, and that was a revelation. I mean, to be in uh, the house where your character lived and, yeah. and did all sorts of things, um, <laughs> that never happens, very rarely. Right. Um, and that house uh, is an extraordinary place. Um, it, as you said, it's based on a Mayan temple, but it's like approaching a monster. The, the doorway <laughs> is like this gaping maw. And, and it's utterly eyeless. There are no windows in it. And it's soundproof. Wow. You can't hear anything. Nobody can hear you that's, scream. That's not a good sign. And, no. That's and not then, a vote for And him. then you're literally swallowed up into it and then taken suddenly to the right in this dark passage. It's like being swallowed by a whale. And then you're disgorged into the middle of it where there's this big uh, courtyard. And all of the rooms of the house are arranged like cells. It's like a cell block. And um, it is the house of a control freak, and that was the oh. biggest uh, revelation. And there are places you can stand in the house and see everything. You can see out onto Franklin Street and be utterly invisible behind a parapet. And uh, so I, I did feel like I was uh, in one of those 18th century panopticons, you know, with yeah. <laughs> all these prisoners. <laughs> and were there any... I mean, I always like to ask questions like this, but did you get bad vibes in any certain I expected areas? to, but I, I felt strangely comfortable. <laughs> it felt, no, it felt, it felt like, I don't know what it had to do with the character or anything, but it felt kind of peaceful and, and lovely. But there was a, a beautiful little shrine uh, to Elizabeth Short oh, wow. in the back, and some rather scary pictures with pentagrams and things around, <laughs> oh. um, which so the current occupants had put up. Like Whoa, a really? victim positive Satanist lived there. Exactly. <laughs> awesome. Like some, so they were charming uh, people. Yeah. Hey, some witchy shit going yeah. on back there. Wow, that's so it. creepy. So we asked, I asked you actually earlier today, we got to talk, and I asked you if you had a hometown murder. Um, and then he told me about seven amazing stories. <laughs> but um, the one that I think really qualified you as a, a very early murderino was you told me one of your favorite, or a book you read. Yes. As a very, uh, it was a child. formative text. Uh, Wisconsin Death Trip. Do you know of that? Mm -hmm. uh, 
Thank you. Um, <laughs> it's, it's an amazing book, but it's, it's a collection of, of, it's a treasure trove of photographs taken in and around Black Falls, Wisconsin, I think, uh, in the 19th century, undeveloped prints, uh, or negatives they found, and, uh, and they're very odd. I remember as a child being utterly gripped by funerary portraiture of all these dead babies in christening dresses crammed into their coffins, you know, standing upright with their little eyes, you know, half open. Um, and that, I can't, I still can't get those images out of my mind. But coupled with it were these wonderful, like, true crime haikus, um, which were newspaper clippings from the local paper with various, uh, you know, murders, madnesses, and mayhems, you know, in, uh, chronicled locally, yeah. but wonderfully terse and dispassionate sort of Scandinavian hired girl, you know, murders all the children with a fire axe, burns the house with the horses down, and the parents discover her laughing in her nightie in the snow. You know, oh, when they come back. just and the basics. And that's it, yeah, just the basics. <laughs> but then to a child's imagination, you sort of go from there. But how old were you? Um, I was uh, seven, I was seven. <laughs> Wisconsin death trip. We gotta check. Mm, Wisconsin that out. death trip. I mean, there was Dr. Seuss's Ha Ha Ha. <laughs> Wisconsin death trip. Oh, wow, that's Basis. incredible. Um, and how was it to work with Patty Jenkins? Oh, she's a dream. Yeah. And oddly, I mean, given the seriousness and morbid nature of this subject matter, it was a, it was just a joyful experience. There was lots of laughter and um, and shenanigans. And uh, I guess when you're doing something like that, you have to laugh. We yeah. do. Yeah. 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 You, gotta, <laughs> you gotta lighten the mood somehow. It's like you want to talk about it, but you also have to be, like, yeah, release the pressure a little bit because yeah. it's uh, it's the worst of humanity. Yeah. I mean, this this man you played is probably one of the worst people that's ever existed. I guess I sat upstairs listening to you, and I just feeling so bad about myself because <laughs> <laughs> you try to detach yourself from that while you're doing it. You yeah. Know? Oh, you um, had a good story about when you guys were shooting at a different location in L.A. Oh, that's right. We were at the Greystone Mansion, mm. uh, which you've done a, a, a piece on, yes, the Doheny was... murder right, up yeah. there. And that that is an unclean place, <laughs> um, <laughs> truly. And I'm not given to, you know, getting spooky but but that was and we had an actual haunting happen uh in which during one of the scenes this inexplicable little white light appeared on the monitor and then on the film but it wasn't like a mote of dust and it wasn't some irregularity in the apparatus it, it had its own independent trajectory and it would sort of angularly float around the scene and behind a character's head and it happened uh, twice and we'd watch it again and again but then the sound man who had done, uh, there would be blood there, uh, had uh, left a microphone on up all night in an upstairs hallway, and around 1.15 in the morning, the, the, you know, the audio wave display, when he was looking at it the next morning, just started spiking wildly, and uh, he listened to it, and, it and, and let me listen to it, and you can hear the sort of, of the hard drive, of the, of the machine, it's and then all of a sudden there's this explosive cacophony of, of, of superhuman slams and bangs and crashes. I mean, and then he went up the next morning and of course nothing had stirred. There was a, you know, a layer of dust over everything. Nothing had happened, but there was this, this audio effect. Yeah, it was truly, that. it was chilling. Yeah. Murder energy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and you can feel it palpably there. I think I would have quit the whole show at that point. Like, 
I'm out. Can we check my contracts? Yeah. I need to get out of here. Is there a haunting clause in there? <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for being here yeah. with us tonight. Thank you. Enjoy the rest. It's so thank exciting. You. Thank you very much. We can't wait to see what your character. Yes, oh my, my, my god. My character gets busier later on. <laughs> I was going to ask, uh, was it your personal choice when we first saw you at the bus stop um, to pronounce it Los Angeles? <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> when the first time I watched it, I laughed out loud <laughs> did, alone yeah. in my house. Well, they did. There was this sort of movement back then to say it that way. Oh, really? Yeah, it was sort of short lived. But uh, I thought I would resurrect it, you know. I thought you were kind of trying to indicate this guy's kind of a dick. <laughs> yes. And there was a certain dickishness here. Yeah. And we're going to start using that from now on, I think. Yes. And here in Lohendel. That's right. Yes. Um, well, amazing. Thank you so much. Thank so you. Much. Thank you guys all for being here with us tonight. This has been an amazing, such amazing show. Thank you so much, TNT, for asking us to do this with you. Um, and we're so excited to see the rest of the series. We hope you guys are, too. Um, so thank you for being here. And as we like to say at the end of every show, stay sexy and don't get murdered.